How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started in our study, let's take a few moments to go to the Lord in prayer. It's important that we recognize that when we go to the Lord in prayer, we need to be in fellowship. Whenever we are engaged in living the Christian life, whether it's prayer, worship, uh, evangelism, just living on a day-to-day basis, we need to make sure we are walking by means of God the Holy Spirit. And when we walk by the Holy Spirit, we enjoy or have fellowship with God. It's not just a static thing. It is an active, dynamic relationship. And we must be have rapport with God. We must be in, in fellowship, walking by the Spirit. When we sin, that's broken, and we have to recover it. And the only way to do so is by confessing sin, which means to admit or acknowledge our sin to God the Father. At that instant, we are forgiven, cleansed of all unrighteousness, restored to fellowship, That richness of our fellowship with God is once again ours, and we can go forward in our spiritual life. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so thankful that we have such a rich grace blessing as forgiveness of sin that this is based upon the work of Christ on the cross, that there's nothing we could ever do to cover our sin, to remove our sin, to make our sins forgivable. But yet Jesus Christ paid that penalty on the cross. He who knew no sin was made sin for us, that the righteousness of God might be found in us. And so we can come to you in prayer. We can come directly before your throne of grace where we can find uh, mercy and help in time of need. And Father, we continue to pray for us as we continue to press on in our spiritual life. People face m- many different challenges in life. Some are health challenges. Some are financial challenges. Others have to do with uh, relationships, with situations at work. And Father, we know that as we face tests, that there is no testing taken us, but such as is common to man and that you will uh, make a way to escape, that we may be able to endure it. And enduring it means to stay there with a positive attitude, a grateful attitude, uh, reflecting upon all that you have given us, that we might live in a hostile environment of the devil's world and still glorify you, having great joy in our souls because of all that you've given us. Now, challenge us in our prayer life as we study through prayer this morning and our study in 1 Thessalonians. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're continuing our study in 1 Thessalonians. This is our fifth lesson. This is a series that I'm pre-recording for times when I'm uh, absent, times when I'm either on vacation or off to conference, something of that nature. I believe this particular uh, lesson is going to be uh, played when I'm at the uh, dispensational hermeneutic study group meeting up in uh, Wilkes, Wilkes, uh, Wilkesbury, Pennsylvania, at the um, uh, at, and are near there at the Baptist Bi- uh, uh, Baptist Bible Seminary, and this is a, a really good group of uh, dispensational scholars who get together and focus on different issues related to primarily hermeneutics. And so I've been to this conference uh, two or three times now. I think this is my third year. First time I went up there two years ago. Every other year they have it there. Every, and in between they have it at different dispensational schools uh, around the country. And so this particular topic is, uh, issue is dealing with uh, dispensationalism and the cessation of the sign gifts. So I'll be giving a presentation there as well as sitting on a panel. Everyone there is a cessationist. That means we do not believe that tongues, uh, the sign gifts, knowledge, prophecy, apostleship, uh, that these are gifts that continue into the church age. 
by there's debate even among dispensationalists as to what those what the best argument is, and so that's part of the focus of this conference. So anyway, I'm looking forward to that. We are in First Thessalonians. We're talking about prayer. Last time I focused on the doctrine of gratitude and how important gratitude should be in our Christian life. Gratitude, I think, is a foundational attitude that we see in the Apostle Paul when he prays. When we have numerous prayers at the beginning of his epistles, he frequently starts off expressing his thankfulness, his gratitude for what God's provided in the lives of those uh, to whom he is writing. I think this is something we have to work on in our spiritual life. I think prayer, first of all, is one of the most difficult disciplines for many Christians to uh, develop in their own life, especially younger Christians. Younger Christians tend to be so busy, consumed with so many different activities from getting established in their careers or even earlier getting established in education, getting established in their careers, uh, getting uh, dating, finding a, a, a spouse, their social life, all of these things, and then having children, raising a family. And I find that as we mature physically, that often, uh, especially when you get into uh, dealing with a number of seniors who are less active, sometimes they're not able to be active at all, that this is when prayer uh, truly becomes a, a priority in their life. However, it should be a priority from the time we are first believers. We need to recognize that under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit, prayer should be a vital part of our life, and we need to take time to understand that this is the, uh, an expression of the richness of our relationship with God, that prayer is a communication basis where we develop our intimacy with God. We speak to him in prayer. In turn, he speaks to us in uh, or through his word. Now, in 1 Thessalonians, Paul begins, as is his uh, style, with prayer. He's writing to the Thessalonian believers. And just a bit of review, Thessalonica is located in Macedonia, it was uh, Paul's second major stop on his second, ma- uh, second missionary journey after he crossed over from uh, Asia Minor or Asia, uh, which ends as you cross over the uh, uh, Aegean Sea and cross the Bosphorus. He is in. Uh, he, he took a ship from Troas, uh, stopping uh, briefly at Samothrace, coming to uh, the modern port of Kavala, the ancient port of Neapolis. Went first to the city of, of, of Philippi or Philippi, and now he's at Thessaloniki, or Thessalonica, as we say in English. And he came there, and then from there he went on to um, Berea, faced hostility, opposition, of course. In Philippi he was faced with uh, with being uh, beaten by uh, lictors, uh, flagellated uh, by these... uh, those who are hostile to his gospel, thrown in jail, all of which was a violation of Roman law. Uh, when they realized that, they released him, and he left Philippi. He came to Thessalonica. There, once again, he meets a hostile uh, audience after a while, and he has to leave because word has caught up with, with uh, them about what happened in Philippi. Uh, he's not going to be thrown in jail. He's not going to be beaten. There are others, uh, believers, who those who came to the Lord as a result of his ministry who were brought before uh, the, uh, uh, the court system there in Thessalonica. Paul has to leave. He goes to Varia. Again, there's problems with hostile, mostly Jews, following him, uh, causing trouble. Then he goes from there to Athens, from Athens to Corinth. And at Corinth, while at Athens, he sent Timothy, Titus back up to Macedonia. They go to um, uh, Philippi. Silas goes to Philippi, Timothy to Thessalonica. And there they uh, uh, investigate how the churches have have been going. They encourage them, help establish them further, and then they come back and rejoin Paul down in Corinth. As they come to Paul in Corinth, Timothy relates that the folks in, in Thessalonica, these new believers, have some issues related to, uh, mostly related to future things and death and what happens uh, at the time of the believer's death if Jesus hasn't returned. So eschatology or future things is a major thrust in both First and Second Thessalonians. So he writes both of those epistles during the 18 months or so that he is in 
uh, Corinth. So these are his uh, second and third epistles, two epistles on the second missionary, second missionary journey. He opens the epistle by saying, Paul, Silvanus, the Latin form of Silas, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, emphasizing the fact that, that here we have God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ as the, uh, overseers of the, of the church that, uh, the church especially is in Christ, but in the Trinity there is a, uh, not a distinction um, in, in that sense, they're both Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all involved in uh, with the establishment of the church. We are positionally in Christ, which would be distinct. The Father is in us. The Holy Spirit is in us. We are in Christ. But here, the way he is uh, expressing it, he is emphasizing the fact of the of the unity of the Trinity in terms of our position before God. Uh, he then says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. As I pointed out, this is a combination of both a Greek greeting, Kyrie, uh, uh, and a Jewish greeting, Hebrew greeting, Shalom, combining them together in a theological sense, emphasizing that only from God the Father can we have real grace and peace. That's the ultimate source of grace and peace. Then in verses 2 through 4, we have his opening prayer emphasizing gratitude. We looked at the doctrine of gratitude in the previous lessons. Uh, here we read just again, we give thanks to God always for you all making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of our God and Father. Because we know, that should be understood as a causal participle, because we have come to know, it's a perfect tense participle, because we have already come to know, beloved brethren, in your election by God. The way they knew that is because they had responded by faith in the gospel. So we're just focusing on this first verse in terms of prayer. Very important to understand Paul's prayers and the priorities in Paul's prayers, the emphasis on giving thanks to God. This was the focus in the previous lesson from the verb evkaristeo, meaning to give thanks, to uh, graciously do something in response to grace. That's a meaning in the word, so gratitude is related to grace, and this is a present tense indicating something that Paul continuously, continuously does. Now, what I want you to pay attention to as we look at this, this verse and these verses is something that uh, plays out across the spectrum of Paul's prayers. He uses words like always, um, remembering without ceasing, uh, continuously. These are words indicating that, that, that Paul is frequently and consistently throughout every day praying. This is not something simply reserved for one point in time or he doesn't just occasionally do this, but prayer is a vital part of his life. Now I hear somebody say, yeah, but he was an apostle. He didn't have to get up in the morning at 5 o'clock and go work out and then go to work and then work an 8- or 9-hour day and then fight rush hour traffic on the way home. And then as soon as he gets home, he has to uh, take care of various uh, domestic chores and responsibilities around the house. And then uh, finally around 9.30 or 10 o'clock at night just drop dead unconscious into bed to repeat the whole thing over the next day. When in the world am I going to do this? Well, if you're creative and responsible, you take time to do it. You do what you want to do. We all do what we want to do. And how we spend our time every day is a reflection of our priorities, our real priorities, not our idealized priorities. And so we have to figure out and somehow find creative ways uh, in a busy, tight schedule to have a time alone with the Lord. When it's all said and done, the Lord's not going to say, how much time did you spend at work? How much time did you spend in rush hour? He's going to know how often we just blew it when we could have been spending and should have been spending time in prayer. That's something for all of us. So I want to point out some things related to Paul's priorities in prayer and just some parallel passages. And in doing this, I'm doing something I haven't done in a very long time, and that is to look at 
Paul's opening prayers and Paul's other prayers, actually, in, in, in his epistles to give us an idea of how, when we should pray and what those, what those different aspects are in his prayers. So we see that he is persistent in prayer. That's the first point. Paul is persistent in prayer. He makes it a priority. He makes it something that he's going to accomplish every day. We can often set aside times for this. Uh, the week may be a busy time, then you grab the weekend, but this should be a priority. During the week, you can have a set prayer time, uh, possibly have a have a small notebook where you can record uh, the answers to prayer requests. The church, we publish it, uh, and, and Sandy emails out every week a prayer list. And you can keep that. There are other tools that you can use. I think the use of your iPhone, your smartphone, your uh, iPad, uh, computer, you have programs uh, within Logos Bible software. You can set up uh, prayer, prayer lists that record requests as well as answers to prayer. Of course, you have to take the time to uh, input all of that into your prayer list. But ways in which you can create that daily discipline of a prayer life. Look at how Paul expresses this in some of his epistles. In Romans 1 9, he says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayer. This is the uh, same word, adialeptos, that we find in 1 Thessalonians 5 17, where Paul mandates or commands us to pray without ceasing, uh, without stopping. That doesn't mean that we pray all day, every day, continuously, but it means that there is a constancy of effort. There is something that is ongoing, and it's like uh, it's uh, Moulton and Milligan tells us that it's a word that was used for the frequency of a cough so that uh, we would uh, pray uh, continuously off and on throughout the day, sort of like having a hacking cough. And it's not that we neglect other areas of our life, uh, other areas and responsibilities that we have, but that this is something that we should be uh, paying a lot of attention to. Philippians, uh, or First Thessalonians chapter 3.10 uh, says this as well. Uh, night and day, Paul says he's praying exceedingly that uh, we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. So night and day. Now, this doesn't mean that he never sleeps. It doesn't mean that he doesn't enjoy life. He doesn't relax. He worked, we know, uh, as he says both here in the Thessalonian epistle as well as in the Corinthian epistle, he worked uh, hard. He worked at a job uh, making tents. So he labored uh, consistently in, with his responsibilities. And as he's doing that, there are times when uh, he can pray uh, briefly. He can pray um, uh, specifically for different things as they come to mind. So that's one thing always that, that, that pops up in these verses is that he comes along and recognizes that um, uh, recognizes that there are times when whenever I remember you, whenever I'm thinking about you, uh, this is when uh, I remember you in prayer. So he says night and day. Now the, another term night and day is also a uh, figurative uh, expression. It is a uh, uh, form of uh, of uh, an idiom indicating continuously, it's not all night, every night, but it's called a merism where you take two extremes, evening and morning, uh, you or evening and morning, you see uh, 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 heavens and the earth. These are phrases that take uh, opposites and combine them together to express a totality of something. So praying day and night just means praying consistently, praying continuously, uh, praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. So at First uh, Thess 3.10, it's recognizing that there's something that they're still lacking in terms of uh, their understanding of doctrine. 
Uh, here, faith is not talking about their ability to believe. It's talking more in terms of the content of their belief. So this is, as we go through these passages, you might also make notes for yourself to indicate things that you are, um, that you can be praying for. These prayers give us a, a tremendous example of the kinds of things that we can be in prayer for, and not just for others, but prayer for ourselves. So part of that is bringing to completion our knowledge of God's Word. So you should be praying every day that God would allow you to have your faith, that is your knowledge of God's Word, brought to completion, making that a priority. Another key passage in an introduction to a, uh, an epistle is in Philippians 1, verses 3 and 4. We'll look at the, uh, several things in, in Paul's opening to the uh, Philippian epistle uh, in terms of prayer as we go through this lesson as well. He says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, uh, taking time to uh, remember and think about people. And, and all of a sudden somebody comes to mind in just sending off a, a bullet uh, prayer to God uh, asking for aid for that particular person. Just the other day, somebody mentioned an uh, extended member of the congregation who was going through some uh, health problems, and since then, uh, this has come to my mind three or four times when I have... Um, Three or four times when I've just been praying, I've been driving down the highway, or maybe I was at home cooking or doing something like that, and I've just it just came to mind, and I would just take a couple of seconds just to pray uh, for that particular person. So Paul says, "I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, and then again, always in every prayer." Notice how you, you, these words uh, uh, pile up on each other. Every remembrance, always in every prayer of mine making request for you with all prayer. This is intercessory prayer, praying for other people. He says the same kinds of things in Philemon. Philemon, very short, one chapter epistle, Philemon 4, 5, and 6. I thank my God making mention of you always in my prayers, hearing of your love and faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. Now, uh, this hearing is probably a, is a participle. It's probably a temporal participle indicating that I make mention of you always in my prayers. Uh, it could be when I hear of your love and faith or because I heard. It had, could have that causal sense as well. Uh, hearing of your love and faith which you have towards the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, what he's saying is, is I've heard these wonderful reports about your spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. It, when I'm reminded of that, it causes me to express gratitude to God for you, for your response, for your growth, for your interest in the Word. And he goes on to say uh, that the purpose for this is, for Philippians 1.6, uh, that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. So these are some of the things that we should be uh, be in prayer for. Another personal epistle, Philemon was written uh, uh, personally to an individual known as Philemon that we have here in 2 Timothy 1, 3, and 4, a uh, statement by Paul to his uh, most significant uh, protege and student, uh, Timothy, who was pastoring a church in Ephesus. And this is the last epistle that Paul that Paul wrote before he was uh, taken to be with the Lord in martyrdom. And he writes to Timothy, I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience as my forefathers did, as without ceasing I remember you in my prayers night and day. Again, this emphasis on continuous prayer for people. This is, just makes it part of his life, training himself to focus in prayer, talking to God, and being thankful for others around him and their spiritual life and spiritual growth. So just think about your family members. Think about your friends. Think about others in the congregation expressing gratitude and thanks to God for them and their spiritual growth and their learning to apply the Word of God in their lives. I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience. As my forefathers did, is without ceasing, I remember you in prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see you 
being mindful of your tears that I may be filled with joy. And so you see that personal element of how Paul expresses his, the fact that he misses Timothy, wishes Timothy were by his side, Timothy were with him, and this is something that he prayed for. It may not have been answered positively by God. God always answers our prayer. Sometimes he says yes, sometimes he says no, and sometimes he says you're just going to have to wait. But no is as much an answer to prayer as yes. Too often we think answered prayer is only when God gives us what we request. But sometimes no is the better answer. Now, in this passage, Paul says, that he is uh, praying as my forefathers did, and his forefathers go back to the Old Testament and to those uh, spiritual leaders in the Old Testament. And I want to take uh, just a couple of minutes to to go back to an important prayer in the Old Testament. I want to look at two examples of prayer, this continuity or continuousness, rather, in prayer, prayer in the Old Testament from Nehemiah, and then just at the prayer life of our Lord Jesus Christ. So turn with me to the Old Testament, to the book of Nehemiah. In Hebrew, Nehemiah is pronounced Nehemiah. So we're going to go to Nehemiah. comes after Chronicles, Second Chronicles. You have the book of Ezra and then the book of Nehemiah. Uh, these books were uh, written about uh, 430 to 440 uh, B.C. as uh, Nehemiah is uh, sent by Artaxerxes back to Jerusalem in order to complete the building of the defenses and the walls around Jerusalem. It's a tremendous book, a tremendous study, but it begins with prayer. The solution comes because of Nehemiah's prayer as he identifies a problem. His identification of a problem uh, is such that uh, it's indicated in the first three verses of uh, Nehemiah chapter uh, chapter one. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hachaliah, it came to pass in the month of Kislev in the twentieth year, as I was in Shushan the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brethren, that is a Jewish emissary from Jerusalem, one of my brethren came with men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. Now, the date of this epistle is somewhere around 430, or the date of this book, rather, is around 430 to 440. That's the time of the events in Nehemiah. This is approximately 150, 160 years after the destruction of the first temple, the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C., And in 586 B.C., when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, he took a third group of captives, uh, prisoners of war, back to his capital in Babylon. And and, uh, there had been two previous deportations, so a huge uh, portion of the population of the southern kingdom of Judah had been taken by uh, Nebuchadnezzar to Babylon. So by the time 150 years has gone by, there's a rather sizable Jewish population in the major cities in, um, in what has now come to be Persia because the Persian Empire defeated the Babylonian Empire around 538 B.C. And then under Cyrus, uh, the Jews were uh, given permission and told to go back uh, go back to the land, and only about 40,000 went with the first uh, first couple of groups, and it was a small group, so numerous Jews stayed in Babylon. And so uh, Nehemiah is concerned about what's happening to the Jewish population back in the land. There's been hostility. There's been difficulty. They did manage to rebuild the temple in 516, but that's been about uh, 75 years, and Jerusalem has not been, uh, the rebuilding of Jerusalem hasn't been completed yet, and so he is inquiring as to the state of his fellow countrymen back in Judah and the state of Jerusalem. 
And the report that he's given is described in verse 3, where they said to him, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province. So there was a group of Jews that were left in uh, Judah and in the northern kingdom of Israel in the land God promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not every, the, the, uh, the Babylonians didn't take everyone out of the land. They left a group there. In fact, there has been a continuous presence of Jews in the land God promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob since the time that Abraham first walked uh, from north to south. The only time all the Jews were out of the land would be during the time of the slavery in Egypt. But once they returned under under uh, Joshua in 14, approximately 1402, 1404 B.C., from that time until the presence there has been a, to the present, there's been a continual presence of Jews in the land. Uh, it never truly belonged to anybody else as a nation. No other country ever existed there. This idea that there should be a Palestinian state just flies in the face of history. The only reason people uh, give any valid validity to that idea is because they are biblically, historically, and politically ignorant of, of the truth, but we live in an age today when, when too often uh, politics and propaganda uh, rule the day, and that's all that people ever, ever hear. So anyway, uh, this is, there are a lot of similarities between what's going on at the time of Nehemiah and the opposition from this uh, sort of, we might call them a proto-Arab population there under Sanballat who are very resistant to the fact that the Jews are now coming back to claim their homeland and what's going on today. A lot of similarities. But they give a report that the survivors are left that are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. There's opposition. There was uh, terrorist-type activity. Uh, it was extremely difficult to once again reclaim the land because it had fallen into disuse, and, uh, and, and the walls in the city of Jerusalem are broken down. The gates are burned with fire. This is still shows the signs of the devastation, even though it's been a uh, 150 years, still shows the signs of the devastation and the defeat of the war uh, with Nebuchadnezzar. Now, notice Nehemiah's response. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned uh, for days. He is, it's like he's been sucker punched. He thought that there had been improvement. There's been a lack of response, lack of leadership, lack of money, mostly a lack of leadership, which he will provide in the course of, of, um, of the, the next few years. But the way he focuses on solving the problem is through prayer. And I just want you to notice a couple of things as he begins to pray. We read in verse four, so it was, when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So for a period of days, he dedicates his life to prayer. He eschews all eating, meals, everything else in life, entertainment, everything else is set aside, and he just focuses on prayer. Fasting is not some mystical, magical thing that reaches out and manipulates God. Uh, too often people have really funny ideas about prayer that somehow in prayer, it's uh, we, we have to say the right thing, use the right formula, somehow bargain with God in some kind of a blasphemous deal that if, that, that if we do X, God will then uh, scratch our back and he will take care of us. Uh, this is not what happens. If I give up food for a certain amount of time, then God's going to be impressed with my, my self-discipline. That's not the idea in fasting. If you think about the ancient world, it took a lot of time to prepare meals. You, ha- you didn't have uh, the store where you could run down and go to the uh, uh, prepared food aisles and just get a few things, take them home and put them in the microwave and and uh, nuke them for a couple of seconds, and then you've got dinner. Uh, you couldn't run down to the drive-through at the local uh, fast food restaurant and pick up a meal. It took time. You had to uh, slaughter the animal. You had to prepare the animal. You had to build the fire, get the firewood. You had all of these things to do, and it would take hours to prepare uh, prepare meals. And so uh, rather than giving yourself uh, Time, uh, giving your time 
to preparing meals, you would instead fast. So fasting was simply a sign that you were so distressed over something that you were clearing your your schedule and you were going to focus on just taking this issue before the Lord in prayer. So for days, this is the idea of continuously or always making mention of you in my prayers that Paul has. This is the pattern that's set up in the Old Testament. We're fasting and praying uh, for days. He prays to the uh, God of heaven. Now in verse 4, notice that it says uh, that he is fasting and praying before the God of heaven, Elohim, uh, Shemaim. And in verse 5, he prays to the Yahweh, to Yahweh, the Elohim, uh, Shemaim, the Lord God of heaven. And he addresses him as, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy uh, with those who love you and observe your commandments. So prayer begins with a focus on God. It is addressed to God the Father. All prayer should be addressed to God the Father, not simply because Jesus addressed prayer to God the Father. Jesus isn't going to pray to himself. I always found that the argument that, that the reason you pray to God the Father is that you Jesus prayed to. Who else is Jesus going to pray to? Well, he doesn't pray to the Holy Spirit. That's not the greatest argument. The greatest argument is that no one else in Scripture prays to Jesus. No one in the New Testament prays uh, to Jesus. They pray to God the Father uh, again and again and again. They don't pray to Jesus or the Holy Spirit because their role is also to be interceders for us. And because they intercede for us, we don't pray to the intercessor. We pray to the one they are praying to, to God the Father. And so we always pray to God. And there's an emphasis here at the beginning upon the attributes of God, a rehearsal of who he is and his character. He's the great and awesome God. And the word there for awesome is the word often translated fear. He is the God who produces fear in the hearts of people, not fear in the sense of fright as if you're watching a horror movie on TV or some uh, suspense drama, uh, violent murder, something like that, which produces uh, fright in us. This is more the awe and respect for God because he is the God of the heavens and the earth who made everything, the seas and all that are in them. Uh, he prays to God of heaven, O great and awesome God, and then he is a faithful God. He keeps covenant and mercy. This is the Hebrew word chesed indicating loyal love, faithful love. Uh, he keeps covenant with those who love you and observe your commandments. And then we see his request here, his pleas, let your ear be attentive and your eyes opened. Lord, he's saying, Lord, pay attention to my prayer. It's a, it's a figurative way of talking. Open your eyes. And not the, he's not saying that, well, God, you're just sleeping. You're not listening. He is calling upon him in a very dramatic way to pay attention to his prayers. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes opened that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, that, again, continuously bringing this request before him. For the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you, both my father's house and I have sinned. So he begins a prayer with confession. And he is going to detail what those sins are. Too many people get the idea that if we confess our sins, all that just means, Lord, I'm a sinner. Thank you for forgiving my sins. Uh, but First John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, indicating specificity, uh, sins such as arrogance, it's not just listing them, it is uh, saying something along the order of, Lord, I've been arrogant. Lord, I have gossiped. Lord, I... Uh, and then you can get even more specific than that. I told a lie yesterday. Lord, I did this. Lord, I I had these evil thoughts. Uh, Lord, I was just terribly uh, uh, consumed with uh, envy over a situation at work. Uh, that's how you confess your sins. Some people think, well, all you do is name them, you know, Lord, uh, envy, jealousy. I mean, it's like reading a grocery list. That's not confession. Confession is an admission 
of guilt, an admission of failure in some area. It's like a courtroom scene. Are you guilty? Yes, Lord. Yes, Judge, I'm guilty. I did the crime. Uh, and then you identify the crime. So it's just a state, a personal statement of an acknowledgement of disobedience. This is what he, what Nehemiah says here. He says, not only have, I, have we sinned, he, this is a prayer. He's coming like a priest, uh, representing the nation. And he says that we have sinned against you and both my father's house and I have sinned. Then he begins to identify this in verse 7. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servants Moses. Now this is a reminder going back to what Moses said in Deuteronomy chapter 28, that there would come a time because the Israelites would violate the law of Moses, that God would remove them from the land. And so he is identifying that. The words in verse 7 come right out of the section from Deuteronomy 28, 15 and following. And this, and it's, in fact, it's very similar to the confession prayer of Daniel that we find in Daniel chapter 9, especially around verses 17 to 20. We've acted corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, statutes, ordinances, which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses. So here he's claiming a promise. God promised that uh, he would scatter the people among the nations. That's in, in verse 8, which is, again, a, a uh, taken from Leviticus chapter 26, verses 39 to 45 in the fifth cycle of discipline, that... They would command your servant Moses, saying, If you're unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the nations. So, Lord, you promised that if we were unfaithful, you would scatter us. We were scattered. But you also promised in Deuteronomy chapter uh, 30, verses uh, 2 through 4, that if we returned, if we shuv, if we turned back to you and kept your commandments, uh, that though some were cast to the farthest part of the heavens, Yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling place of my name. Now, that hasn't happened yet. There's just a partial return in that return that occurred uh, between the uh, the return in, in roughly 538 all the way up to the time of Christ. Still, at that time, in the Old Testament, much more than 50% of the Jews in the world lived outside of the promised land that God had given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Only today... In the, in the 20th and 21st century have we seen such a massive return of Jews in the world to Israel that we're almost at a point where over, where, where half the Jews in the world live in the land of, of Israel. This is an indication that God is finally fulfilling this particular promise. But I want you to notice something that there are two returns in the scripture that are spoken of in prophecy. There's a return in unbelief, and that's what I believe we're seeing now, and then there will be a return in belief. That's really the return that's mentioned here, uh, this return in belief. And that's the promise that Nehemiah is claiming. So we see examples here of confession. We see examples of the faith rest drill activated within his prayer. And, but above all, we see that he is praying consistently and persistently uh, for uh, for his people. Now, another passage, a couple of verses I want you to pay attention to in terms of prayer priorities has to do with the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, often I find that people rationalize things that the Lord did by saying, well, he did that. He was the son of God. He did that. That's the right thing. But we're to imitate him. We're to do what he did. He is giving us an example of how we ought to live. And in his humanity, he's not doing this because he's God. He's doing this because in his humanity, he recognizes how how significant his day-to-day, moment-by-moment dependence upon God is, and that he has to uh, has to turn to God uh, continuously and rely upon God for every aspect of his life in his humanity. So this is done as an example for us. So we have these three passages that I that I picked out. Uh, Luke six, 
Now it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray. Continuously, Jesus goes and gets away from everybody someplace where he could pray. Now that's not always something that you can do. Sometimes it's very difficult if you're a mom and you have a lot of kids or you're at work and there's always people around. But sometimes you can just create an environment, go someplace quietly where you can focus on the Lord. There's a story, one of my favorite stories from church history of Susanna Wesley, who was the mother of, of I think she had 11 children, among whom were both John and uh, uh, Charles Wesley, who were known uh, in church history as uh, founders of the Methodist movement, which was originally a reform movement, back to the Bible movement in the Anglican church in the mid-18th century. But the story is told that if she wanted to pray or had spend time with the Lord, then what she would do is, uh, back in those days, women wore large, uh, large dresses with lots of petticoats. She would just pull her skirt up over her head so that she would have a little quiet time. And uh, the kids all knew that's when you left mom alone because she's praying to God. So you have to set aside time for prayer, not just the bullet prayers, but a significant time for prayer. So Jesus um, went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer. Now, the Lord did that on several occasions. I find that when I've had a long, hard day and I start to pray, I usually fall asleep. I think that's what a lot of people do. We say our nighttime prayers as we're laying there on the pillow, and we never quite complete the prayer because we just go right to sleep. Uh, but the Lord would stay up all night. Now, his disciples had a little problem with that when he took Peter and John with him in the Garden of Gethsemane and the Lord went off to pray alone. He would come back and they would be fast asleep. He'd say, you guys wake up, stand guard, watch. He would go off again, come back, and they're sound asleep. So this is not something that is uh, uh, unique to any, any of us that we have trouble staying awake. Uh, but the Lord would stay all night in prayer, praying continuously. It's a, it's a priority. Mark 135. Now in the morning, having risen a long time before daylight, see, I always like these passages in scripture. I'm a morning person and I like to kind of tweak people who aren't morning people. My, my best time of the day is about 435, 530 in the morning. In the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. He took time to be alone. He made the effort and carved out the time specifically for prayer when there would be a minimum of distraction and interruption. Uh, Matthew 14:23. and when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now, when evening came, he was alone there. So we see this picture. Think in terms of your schedule where at times you can get away just for the purpose of prayer. Another priority that we see in Paul's prayer in terms of just thinking about the different um, aspects of prayer Remember prayer, we start off, we have, a, I've got a little acronym we use, adoration, uh, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. These are just mentioning the different parts of prayer. We can change it on CATS, C-A-T-S, confession, adoration, thanksgiving, and supplication. And so we see this aspect of adoration. We've talked about confession already. Ephesians 1-3, Paul is expressing praise to God. Uh, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, remember, I focus on gratitude here as the next element in prayer, and we have Romans 1.8. First, I thank God. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. And again and again, Paul is talking about the um, expresses his gratitude. We talked about this in the previous previous class. But I think that uh, when we focus on praising God, reflecting upon all that he has given us, and you take time to do that every single day, thanking God for your health. Uh, this is something that in my life I've become very much aware of recently. God has tr- blessed me with good health. And I look around uh, sometimes at, at many of my peers and close friends, people I've known most of my life, and uh, they're my age. Some are a little older, some are a little younger. 
And we're of an age where sometimes we're starting to have some things not work out so well, whether it has to do with blood pressure, whether it has to do with cholesterol, whether it has to do with uh, diabetes, or whether it has to do with, with just physical strength and endurance, balance, just maybe little things. I am recognizing that how significant and important it is to have health. Uh, and and to be able to carry out the ministry that God has given me, and over the last couple of years, I have this has become more and more a part of my uh, prayer life every day. Is just thanking God that I'm healthy, that I don't have serious health problems, and that I'm able to do the things that I'm able to do because God has blessed me in this way. And I have absolutely nothing to do with that. But I am much aware of that every single day. And I think that whatever it may be in your life that you can be thankful for every single day, focus on that, and it certainly shapes and refines our whole perspective, our whole attitude toward life. Because we need, above all, as believers, to be a thankful people. And that works itself out. If you're not thankful, the opposite is you're going to be angry, resentful, and bitter. And that comes out eventually in time in our life. So we need to focus on the fact that God has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places and sit down sometime and start making a list of the many spiritual blessings that God has given you, your riches in Christ Jesus, uh, during this dispensation. And that will help you to focus upon that which has et- eternal value. When we talk about prayer, we talk about confession, adoration, the next area is, is thankfulness. What I want to do, we covered the doctrine of gratitude last time, but I want to go through various passages in Paul where he expresses his gratitude to God for different things. Now, that's a lengthy section, so I'm going to go ahead and end this class a couple of minutes early because I don't want to start on the on those gratitude passages uh, until next time. So we'll come back next time and focus upon uh, all, the, all the different ways in which Paul expressed gratitude, gratitude for the people that he's addressing, gratitude to God for what he's given them, uh, all of these different areas, and then we'll get into some of the ways in which he <coughs> excuse me, expresses his uh, supplications to God and his intercessory prayer for others as we continue our study in First Thessalonians. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to reflect upon these things that you've provided for us. We're so thankful that we have the great privilege to gather together as believers to study your word, the great privilege that we have to have freedom in this country, uh, the heritage that we've been given by our forefathers, the heritage we've been given in many cases by our parents, by our grandparents, by our great-grandparents, where we can look at a family where there has been a, a, a generational uh, transference of a love for you uh, down through the ages. We're thankful for all that you have given us. We're thankful for your word. We're thankful for your promises. We're thankful for a good teaching that exposes us to an understanding of how to live the Christian life. And we pray that we might put into practice uh, that which we've learned, that we might be more consistently in prayer to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.